several years ago in a number of conferences done on prayer for spiritual awakening, surveys were taken asking the attendees how much time they spend in prayer every day. There were 15,000 laymen and women who attended these, and the average answer was five minutes a day. Now, among the 2,000 ministers and their spouses who were present and surveyed, as you would expect, the results were significantly better. Some 40% better, in fact. A few accountants in the group, I see. Seven minutes a day. Not a lot better, right? And I really pondered that. I thought, how could it be that the people who would voluntarily come to a seminar in prayer for spiritual awakening would answer like that? Because these would be among the cream of the crop of praying people in their churches who would voluntarily come to a conference on this. And yet they're the ones praying five minutes a day or seven minutes a day. And as I evaluated that, I said, if that's representative of the church as a whole, I I think, well, we have a problem, but the problem, I think, is that we don't feel like praying. And we don't feel like praying because when we do pray, we tend to say the same old things about the same old things. And when you've said the same old things about the same old things about a thousand times, how do you feel about saying them again? You don't, right? Anybody dare use the B word? Bored. Yeah, thanks. I think they courage to admit that. We can be talking about the most important things in our lives to the most fascinating person in the universe and be bored to death. Not because we don't love God, not because we don't love the things we're praying about, but I would argue once again, it's not you it's your method but we tend to conclude there must be something wrong with me i am a second-rate christian and i would argue no if you have the holy spirit problem is not you it's your method now again i've said if you have the holy spirit there is no method that will enliven prayer for those who don't have the holy spirit they have no appetite for it they have no real desire for it And the biggest problem in the evangelical world is the church member who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. The unconverted church member, denomination I'm a part of, by our own self-reported statistics, church by church count, and self-reported two-thirds of the people in my denomination will not be in church tomorrow, giving biblical reason to question whether they are, in fact, Christian in the first place. Well, the Bible says, by this we know We've passed out of darkness into light because we love the brethren. And if they don't love us enough to ever be with us, then that's a reason to at least question that love, isn't it? Only the Lord knows, but if you don't think so, try that on your spouse. I love you. I don't care if I ever see you again, but I love you. Well, you at least question that love, right? But I presume to be speaking to people who do have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, whenever He enters any flesh and blood creature, He brings with Him holy hungers and holy desires and holy appetites and holy longings and holy aspirations. New holy loves for the Word of God that you didn't have before, you found boring. New holy love for the people of God without whom you cannot 
perpetually be separated. They mean too much to you. You receive so much from them. You long to live in a holy body without any sin, a holy mind that never succumbs to temptation. In a holy and perfect world with holy and perfect relationships. And at last see the one that the angels call holy, holy, holy. That is the heartbeat of what percentage of people in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. 100%. Whether they're 9 or 99. They may express these things in 9-year-old ways, but those hungers, those desires are there. And if you're 99, the, the years and the encrusted traditions and experiences of a lifetime upon that does not quench that heartbeat that is the ever-fresh, ever-green work of the Holy Spirit in every person in whom He dwells. That's His work. And one of the things He does, according to both Romans and Galatians, <clears throat> is to cause us to cry out, what? Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit gives us these new fatherward Desires These new heavenward orientations whereby we, we cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, those who have the Holy Spirit really want to pray. You really believe in prayer. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But while that is pushing against one side of your soul, colliding with that is our experience. And our experience is, yet, but when I pray, it's boring. And when it's boring, we don't feel like praying. And when we don't feel like it, it's hard to make ourselves pray for more than five or seven minutes. Our mind is wandering half the time. We think, why does God need to hear me say this again? We're just going through this routine of saying these words. And five to seven minutes is an eternity. <clears throat> and we can just hardly force ourselves beyond that. We begin to feel like that little girl who would go to bed every night praying that memorized prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. Finally, one night she thought, why does, why does God need to hear me say this again? So she just recorded it into a tape, and then she would play the tape every night when she went to bed. Now, you're laughing, but you have prayer tapes in your head. They're just a little more sophisticated than that. There are probably people here in this room right now. I could call on to pray without knowing you. Call on, would you stand up and pray for us right now? And you could give that person's prayer because you've heard it so many times before. <clears throat> I'm in a different church just about every Sunday, and I hear the same prayer all over the country. Lead, guide, and direct us. Bless the gift and the giver. Hide the pastor behind the shadow of the cross. I mean, it's like beads on a string. The red bead, and then here's a green bead, then here's a blue bead. <clears throat> Maybe in Omaha it's different. It's not like that. I don't know. Maybe it's the blue bead, then the green bead, <laughs> then the red bead. It's the same prayer. I pastored a church in the suburbs of Chicago for 15 years, and one Sunday morning the ushers came and <clears throat> prayed for the offering. As the man is praying, I hear someone talking while he's praying. And I thought, well, surely this person will be quiet at the moment. And then I quickly realized it was a child. And I thought, well, surely some adult will get this child in line in just a moment. But as it continued, I realized, you know, it's still going on. So I opened my eyes and looked, and there on the second pew was the five-year-old son of the man who was praying. And I realized what he was doing is praying along with his dad. Now, not repeating it after his dad said it, but saying it in unison with his dad. Like we would say the Lord's Prayer in unison, maybe. Well, this was dad's prayer. Now, how could he do that? It's because every time dad prayed, whether over the Lord's Supper table at the church or the Supper table at home, it was the same cotton-picking prayer. That's why. This kid has been in the world 60 months. And he's already memorized everything his dad prays when he prays. 
And you probably know people like that. In some Bible study group of yours or someone else, when they're calling to pray, it's the same prayer you could give their prayer. And our hearts don't soar when we hear that kind of praying. We just kind of politely endure it, you know. But we all realize that's the way we are. That's the way we pray. And it's boring. And when it's boring, we can hardly make ourselves. Now, some out of just sheer duty and obligation because they know God wants us to pray and the Spirit of God's prompting me to pray, we'll grind it out, but we say the same old things about the same old things, and it's boring. And when it's boring, we don't feel like praying. And when we don't feel like praying, it's hard to make ourselves pray, and we feel like failures. And we say, I guess there's something wrong with me. I'm a second-rate Christian. No, it's not you, if you have the Holy Spirit. It's your method. And the method most of us default to, very quickly, is saying the same old things about <coughs> the same old things. When we began the last session, I said the two mo- there are personal spiritual disciplines and interpersonal spiritual disciplines. Today we're talking about personal spiritual disciplines. And the two most important ones are the intake of the Word of God in prayer. And in that order, for it's more important for us to hear from God than for God to hear from us. So as important as prayer is, it's not as important as the intake of the Word of God. And with both of these basic, most important personal spiritual disciplines, there's a common and universal problem. With the intake of the Word of God, I said, is that we read our Bible, we close it, we don't remember a thing we've read. And the problem is a lack of meditation. Reading is never intended to be the primary means of, in, uh, of incorporating, of absorbing the Word of God. It's a starting place. Reading is a starting place. It's not the ending place. Reading is the exposure to Scripture. Meditation is the absorption of Scripture. It's the absorption of Scripture, at least the transformation of life and experiencing the things of God. <coughs> Excuse me. With, so with the intake of the Word of God is a common, almost universal problem. With prayer, there's also this common and almost universal problem, and it's right up there. Nearly everyone pretty quickly defaults into saying the same old things about the same old things. And when you do that, it's boring. And when prayer is boring, you can't make yourself pray as often as you yourself want to pray, as long as you yourself want to pray, because it's just too hard to sustain something that's that boring. And so we conclude, I'm the problem. Something's wrong with me. <clears throat> no, the problem is not you. It is your method. <clears throat> now, the problem is not that we pray about the same old things. That's normal. If I sent you out and I said, I want you to go outside here and I want you to find a place and I want you to pray for ten minutes. And I gave you no instructions. Most of us would probably pray about the same half a dozen things. You'd pray about your family in one sense or another. If you're single, you know, perhaps you'd pray about wanting to be married. In some sense, one way or another, it would relate to family. You'd pray about your future, perhaps some decision that's before you. Should I take that change at work, a transfer, or should I not? You'd pray about your finances, perhaps God's provision for that car, for those bills, for school. You'd pray about your work, or a student would pray about schoolwork. You'd pray about your church, or perhaps some ministry that you have. Maybe just a ministry of someone you're trying to share the gospel with at work or down the street. And then the current crisis in your life. Statistically, I'm told each of us has a pretty significant crisis on the order of once every six months or so. That may be a good thing or a bad thing. It may be a birth or a death. It may be a job change you want 
or one you don't want. But it's such a big deal that when you go to pray, it's one of the first things that pops into your head. Well, if you're going to pray about your life, that is your life, isn't it? How much of your life is not related to your family, your future, your finances, your work or your schoolwork, your church, your ministry, and the current crisis? Pretty much it, isn't it? <clears throat> this is where you spend all of your time. How much of your life is not spent in those things. And furthermore, this is where we, our hearts are. This, these tend to be the great loves of our lives. So if you're going to pray about your life, that is your life. And thank the Lord, those things don't change dramatically very often, do they? So, what does that mean? It means if you're going to pray about your life, and those things don't change very often. The result is you're going to pray about the same old things most of the time. That's normal. The problem is that we say the same old things about the same old things. It's not that we pray about the same old things. It's that we say the same old things about the same old things. And that is the way virtually everyone begins to pray sooner or later. And it's boring. And when it's boring, we don't pray. Though you can't ever quit. Though inside you say, it's frustrating when I pray. I feel like a failure when I pray. My prayers aren't answered. You can never get to the point of saying, well, so I'm never going to pray again. That's it. I'm giving it up. No more prayer for me. You can't. Because of the one, that other person living within your body... Is keep keeps causing you to cry out, Abba, Father. So you believe in prayer. And you really want to pray. But when you pray, it's boring, it's frustrating, and we say, so I guess it's me, I'm a second-rate Christian. I don't want it to be that way. I love prayer. I believe in prayer. But it's so boring. But you'll read a book on prayer, you'll hear a sermon on prayer, you'll come to something like this, and you'll go back, re-motivated, revitalized to prayer. But basically saying the same old things about the same old things just with more oomph behind it for a while. But pretty soon, the enthusiasm evaporates away, and here you are again, back saying the same old things about the same old things. It's as boring as ever, only now you feel guiltier than ever because you had been so remotivated. <clears throat> well, what is the solution? Well, whatever that solution is, it must be fundamentally. Simple. Because if God requires all of his children to pray, then it has to be doable, doesn't it? It has to be doable by us, by ordinary people. And as I said in the last hour, if it is not possible for every Christian in this room to have a meaningful, satisfying prayer life, <clears throat> then it is not possible for Christians anywhere. For as I said last time, most Christians in the world don't have your Christian advantages. They never get to come to Christian conferences. <clears throat> they may not even come to a church where the Bible is preached. They don't have Christian bookstores in their church. They don't have access to the Internet where they can get Art of Divine Meditation right there on the Internet. They don't have the Christian advantages that you have. And so if you, and I mean every Christian in this room, 
with all your Christian advantages, if you can't have a meaningful, satisfying prayer life, you're condemning virtually all the Christians in the world to be unable to have one. And I know you would never say that. No one would ever say, well, since I can't have a meaningful prayer life, I know that means no one in the world hardly can have one. I would never say that. And I believe you when you say that. But you, you don't believe that. We just say, I don't know about anybody else. I just know in my experience, when I pray, it's boring. It's something wrong with me. I'm a second-rate Christian. No, it's not you. It's your, it's your method. So the solution has to be simple. Because God has children, that, again, that are 9 and 99, low IQs, high IQs, little education, a great deal of education. But if it requires all of us to pray, and he does, then to pray meaningfully, satisfyingly, must be fundamentally simple. I keep hitting on that because that's probably the hardest task I have here today, is convincing you of that. Because many of you know from decades... Of prayer, saying the same old things about the same old things and it being boring and, and just being absolutely convinced by the sheer passage of time. I don't know about anybody else. So there's something wrong with me. I'm a second-rate Christian. I, re- I believe in prayer, and I want to pray. But when I pray, it's boring. It's always been boring. It must be me. No, it's not you. It's your method. What is the solution? It's got to be simple. Here it is. When you pray, pray through a passage of Scripture, particularly a psalm. Particularly a psalm. Now, most of you have heard of this before. If you hadn't, I think you'd have reason to be suspicious. If this is what I'm saying is the solution to prayer, and as much as you've heard about prayer, if you've never heard of this before, you'd have reason to be suspicious. But I think you may hear about it today in some even fresh ways. Where most of us are introduced to this idea for the first time is someone will be teaching on the epistles of Paul and will come to one of the prayers in his epistles and will be told, we should pray these kinds of prayers today. Yeah, we should. I'm going to argue to pray the whole letter. But particularly, I want to encourage praying through a psalm. Praying through a psalm. And with that in mind, I'd like for you to turn to the 23rd psalm. Because I want to show you what this looks like. Psalm chapter 23. And I picked this one because I trust most of you are familiar with it. We can focus on the method here and not really the interpretation of the passage. So, say you're going to pray by praying through a psalm. Today you're going to pray through the 23rd psalm. You've already done your Bible reading. You've read over in Matthew or you read in the book of Hebrews. And today, having finished that, you're going to pray and you're going to pray through a psalm. So you turn to the 23rd psalm and you begin to pray. It looks like this. You read the first verse. The Lord is my shepherd. And you say, Lord, I thank you that you are my shepherd. You're a good shepherd to me, and you've shepherded me all of my life. But, oh, great shepherd, please shepherd me in that decision that's before me at work. Do I take that job change or do I not? Lord, please shepherd my children today. Guide them into the ways of God. Guard them from the ways of the world. Lead them not into temptation. Deliver them from evil. And, Father, I pray you would make them your sheep. Draw them to yourself. May they they own you as their shepherd, just as I do. And, O great shepherd, please shepherd our under-shepherd at the church so that as he shepherds, 
Please shepherd him as he shepherds us. And basically, whatever comes to mind when you read, the Lord is my shepherd, you talk to God about it. And when nothing else comes to mind, you go on. I shall not want. Lord, I thank you I've never really been in want. Never missed a meal. All that I have, all that I am is from you. But, oh, great shepherd, I do pray you would provide the money we need for that car, for those bills, because I know it pleases you. I bring my desires. So, Lord, please provide for those things. And when nothing else comes to mind, you go on. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And what comes to mind may be as simple as, Lord, I pray you'll enable me to be able to lie down and take a nap today. Or the idea of the green pastures reminds you of the feeding of the flock of God. And perhaps some ministry of teaching that you have or someone has for you. When was the last time you prayed for your Bible study teacher? Or you pray for your pastor as he feeds the flock of God? And so basically what we're doing is taking words that have already originated in the heart and mind of God and circulating them through our hearts and minds and back to God so that his words become the wings of our prayers. Nothing else comes to mind. You go on, he leads me beside quiet waters. And you say, oh, Lord, please do lead me in this decision about work. Do I take the change or do I not? I want to do your will, oh, Lord. Just lead me in what it is. And lead me beside quiet waters. I'm anxious about this job situation. Quiet the waters of my heart. Quiet the waters in my home. Quiet the waters wherever waters need to be made quiet. And when nothing else comes to mind, you go on. He restores my soul. Lord, I come to this conference today so spiritually dry. Please restore to me the joy of your salvation. Or that person you're trying to share the gospel with down the street or at work may come to mind. And you pray God would restore their soul from darkness to light, from death to life. And on and on you'd go through this psalm talking to God about whatever comes to mind. Until either A, you run out of time, or B, you run out of psalm. And see how easy that is? Anybody can do that. You go through it line by line, talking to God about whatever comes to mind. Even if, now listen carefully, because what I'm about to say is the most potentially misunderstandable thing about this. Now, I want you to listen very carefully, and especially those of you who have ever heard the word hermeneutics. Many of you have already been squirming, but I want you to hear me out on this. That you go through it line by line, talking to God about whatever comes to mind, even if what comes to mind has nothing to do with the text. Now, let me defend that biblically. What does the text of Scripture tell us to pray about? Everything, right? So everything that comes to mind as you're going through this is something you should pray about, right? text of Scripture tells us that. Now, I want to make a distinction here between interpreting the Bible, especially for preaching, for teaching, and simply talking to God about what comes through your mind as you're reading the Bible. Okay? That, I hope, to alleviate any concerns some of you may have about this. And I want to reaffirm every 
true principle of good hermeneutics. We never have a right to read anything into the text. We always read the original meaning from the text or seek the original meaning. But that's primarily when we are doing interpretation of Scripture. We're studying. We're going to preach it or teach it. It's not what we're doing here. <clears throat> this is just Bible reading and turning every thought Godward that comes to our minds while we're reading it. You see the distinction? Do I need to amplify that further? I, I, I mean, I know I might, I'm just a tad compressed for time on this, and I know some of you would have more concerns about this than others, but, but if you do, talk to Pat about that. No, I'm, I'm serious because he's, he's well-versed in, in this idea of hermeneutics, and I, I hope he understands where I'm coming from. I think he does. In other words, let me use a ridiculous illustration to make the point. Let's say you're reading over in Psalm. I, for, I forget uh, which one it is exactly in the moment. <clears throat> but it says, Oh, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? And while you're reading that verse, your friend Mark comes to mind what should you do pray for mark now you know that verse is not about mark okay but he popped into your head while you were reading the bible pray for mark let me give you a more realistic illustration perhaps verse three there he restores my soul i said what comes to mind is <clears throat> that that person uh you're trying to share the gospel with, and you pray God would restore their soul from darkness to light, from death to life. That verse is not about evangelism. It's about a believer's soul being restored to the joy of the salvation. If I were to get up tomorrow and preach on a 23rd Psalm and get to that point and say, now this is about God restoring the souls of those in darkness, the light and so forth, that would be wrong. It's misusing the text. That's not what it teaches, and we never have that right. What I'm saying is, as you're reading it, this guy comes to mind. The soul, the lost soul of your friend comes to mind, and you use this biblical language, Lord, restore his soul. But in this case, from death to life, from darkness to life. So, I'm not saying we read anything into it. I'm just saying that, you know, when you read the Bible... Sometimes you're not concentrating as well as you are. Sometimes you're reading the Bible, thoughts just pop into your head. Well, to use biblical language here, turn every thought to the captivity of Christ. Captivity of Christ. Take every thought captive. Obedience to Christ. In, it. in other words, turn every thought Godward as you're reading the text. So at some points, you're actually praying Scripture. At other points, you're praying thoughts that came to you while you were reading Scripture. But rather than your mind wandering off, you're keeping it focused on the text. And I tell you, I have enough confidence in the Word and in the Spirit of God that if people will pray like that, in the long run, their prayers will be far more biblical than if they just make up their own prayers. I believe most of the time, because of a doctrine called the perspicuity of Scripture and because of the work of the Holy Spirit, I believe that as believers are reading the text of Scripture, most of the time their thoughts will be understanding the essentials of what's there and that your prayers will be generally congruent with the meaning of the text. But my point is, whatever comes to mind, turn that Godward. And that if you'll do that, 
your prayers will be far more biblical than they ever will be just always making up your own prayers. That the Word of God will guide you to pray about what the text is about most of the time. And so you simply go through it line by line, talking to God about whatever comes to mind. Not looking to justify what's some crazy connection here. I mean, you you focus on the text. And you're talking to God about every line. But if in talking to God about it, your mind kind of does like this. Gets off the subject. Take that subject Godward. And I believe they'll bring you back to the text. So if you're going through it, just line by line, whatever comes to mind, talk to God about it. And if you come to a verse you don't understand... Fine, skip it. Go on to the next verse. If you don't understand that, fine, skip it. Go to the next verse. If you do understand it, but nothing comes to mind to pray about, fine, go on to the next verse. You may have 20 or 30 verses in that psalm. Maybe only five or six things come to mind. Great. Nothing says you have to pray over every verse. Nothing says you have to finish the psalm. I was doing this out in Santa Rosa, California, and gave people a chance to try this. And one woman prayed 25 minutes, and she never got past, The Lord is my shepherd. For 25 minutes, she talked to the Lord about being her shepherd. Do you think the Lord was up there going, "Ah, You didn't finish the song? (laughs) No, I think he was delighted that she found so much delight in him being her shepherd that she could talk to him for 25 minutes about that. But there are times, more likely, you'll go through 30 verses and not that much has come to mind. Fine. Just keep turning the page. I had Joe Porter in one of my classes many years ago and talking about these things. The very first day of class, I tell him, okay, guys, now, one of your assignments during the semester is I want you to spend four consecutive hours alone with God. <clears throat> when I do that, you see him all go... You know, what am I going to do for four hours? Well, after I've spent four hours teaching what we did in the last hour of meditation and taught what I'm teaching you now, most of them spend the entire four hours alternating between meditating on Scripture and praying through Scripture, perhaps writing some of the meditations in a journal. Virtually all of them go longer than four hours, almost every one, not because they have to. But they find themselves enjoying God so much they don't want to stop. And see, the great thing is, if you've got time, you just keep turning the page. Now, this, this is so, so wonderful because this works whether you have four minutes or four hours. <clears throat> if you've only got four minutes, you just don't get very far. If you've got four hours, you just keep turning the page. And you never run out of anything to say. But the best part is, you never repeat yourself. You never again say the same old things about the same old things. Now, that alone is worth it, isn't it? The sheer freshness of that. But it's better than that. It gets even better than that because the words we're using are inspired words. There is a supernatural quality to these words. Jesus said, the words that I speak to you are spirit. They are life. These are the words we are using when we pray through Scripture. So if it were the sheer novelty, the freshness, just knowing that you will never again in your life say the same prayer, that's worth it. But it's even better than that. 
You're praying the very words of God. So it's very, very simple. A six-year-old who can read can do this. You just go through it line by line. Whatever comes to mind, talk to God about it. Because the Bible tells us we should pray about everything anyway, right? So whatever comes to mind as you're going through the text, talk to God about it. And one more time, just for clarity's sake, there's a time when we're studying the Bible and our primary purpose is to understand the meaning. That's the primary purpose. What does it mean? But even then, we are praying. We're praying for illumination. We're, we're praying over things. But our primary purpose is study for meaning. Here, what I'm talking about, our primary purpose is prayer. That's the main thing we're doing. But we're praying as we're reading the Bible. But the study of Scripture is, is secondary at this time. The primary purpose activity is prayer. So when we're studying the Bible, we should pray. But we're mainly doing study. Using tools, writing things down. What does it mean? How do we apply it? But what does it mean? But we pray over that. But over here, while we're in the Word of God, we're mainly, the main thing we're doing is praying right now. And as we're reading the Bible, we're just praying every thought that comes to us while we're reading the Bible. Our focus is on God, but as we're reading everything, we're just turning it Godward. So you simply go through it line by line, whatever comes to mind. And if you have a lot that comes to mind on one verse, stay on as long as you want. If nothing comes to mind, go to the next verse. If you don't understand it, go to the next verse. You'll come to those sections we call the imprecatory psalms. Oh, Lord, dash their children's heads against a rock and smash their teeth in their mouth and cause them to dissolve like the snail into the slime. Or maybe some at work you kind of like to pray that for. <laughs> it's hard to do with a pure motive, isn't it? <clears throat> well, I don't think we should put people's names in there. I think ultimately we put those in the, in the mouth of Christ. I think ultimately Jesus... Put all the psalms in his mouth, and someday he's going to do far worse than just smash the teeth in the mouth of his lifelong unrepentant enemies, isn't he? You know, I think we can, put, uh, we can put sins in there. I pray God will do that with abortion in this country, for example. Pray that he will do that with the enemies of my soul. He would destroy the sins that come out of the sin factory of my heart like that. In the destructive ways I read about these imprecatory songs. But let's say on Tuesday, you come to one of those imprecatory sections. You say, now that, that Whitney guy said we could pray through a section like this. What did he say? I don't remember. If you don't remember, skip the whole section if need be. Just as you're going through the psalm, whatever comes to mind, talk to God about it. It may be a prayer of, Lord, what does this mean? Help me remember what he told us about these. But whatever comes to mind... Take it Godward. Till A, you run out of time, or B, you run out of psalm. See how easy that is? Anybody can do that. Well, go back to Psalm 20. We're going to use that as another illustration. But as you're turning, let me point out something here that's not original with me. It's called the Psalms of the Day. You know, we have 150 psalms. Generally 30 days in the month, which divides out five times. If, this is not what I'm advocating, it's a great practice, but if you were to read five psalms a day for a whole month, at the end of the month, you would read through the book of Psalms. 
It's a great practice. That's not really what I'm advocating. I'm advocating taking 30 seconds to scan five psalms so that you can pick one of them to pray through. Here's how you do it. Suppose that today is the 15th. All right, the day of the month is your first psalm. How many psalms are you looking for? We're looking for five. So there's my first one. Here's how I get the second one. I add 30. Where does 30 come from? Days of the month. So that gives me 45. And you just keep it up. Do you get five psalms? 30 more is 75. 30 more is 105. 30 more is 135. So those five numbers in gold up there, those are the five psalms of the day whenever it's the 15th of the month. 15th of October, 15th of November, 15th of December, it doesn't matter. If it's the 15th of the month, those are always the five psalms of the day on the 15th of the month. And what do you do on the 31st? Psalm 119. Comes up on the 29th, but even if you use it, you'll probably have plenty left over. Uh, for the 31st. But now, let's see if you have it. What are the Psalms of the day today? Why 20? Today is the 20th. All right, there's my first one. Psalm 20 is the first one today because today is the 20th of the month. What's the next one? Why 50? Because you add 30. What's next? 80. What's next? Yeah, you hesitate, and when you go up to three digits, it gets a little harder. <laughs> but it's good for your math on top of all of that. So 110 and then 140. So on the 20th of the month, there are 20, 50, 80, 110, 140. That's why I said go to Psalm 20. Now, what I'm advocating is you, you quickly scan those five psalms and pick the one that just seems to speak to you for that day. And the benefits of using this method are twofold. The most important is it gives you a place to go. You've read your Bible. You're going to pray. So you say, say where am I going to go today? Okay, 20, 20, 50, 80, 110, 140. As opposed to, let's see, what psalm am I going to pray through today? Let's see. Let's see. How about... No, I read that one the other day. Let's see. How about this? No, I don't like that one. Let's see. See, that sort of aimlessness is already self-defeating. The, your, the, the, motive, the momentum is already against you. When you know you've got five places to go. Okay, what's that? 20, okay, so here's where I'm going. Here, here, okay, look at that one. Now look at that one. How about this one? And the other benefit is, over time it takes you through all of the Psalms. They're all equally inspired. All worthy of doing this with. Now, I don't try to, you know... I don't think it's important to try to balance it out. In other words, I, I don't advocate you saying, okay, today, I did Psalm 20 today, so next month I've got to do 50 and the next month 80. I don't worry about that. I don't think, okay, what, which one did I do last month? I might use Psalm 20 three months in a row. I just know that over the years, this will take you through all of the Psalms. And they're all equally inspired. Now, they're not all equally easy. Psalm 23 is an easy one. Some of the Psalms that are nothing but imprecatory Psalms, those are not as easy to pray through. But if you pick five, it's uncanny how one of them will put into expression something that's looking for expression in your heart. Now, let me briefly tell you why. I think the Psalms are the best place in Scripture from which to 
do this? Well, <clears throat> before I get to that, let me, let me just go Psalm 20 illustrate that <clears throat> very quickly, and then uh, I'll come back to this. <clears throat> Psalm 20. <clears throat> See, I've already done my Bible reading. We're going to pray and turn to Psalm 20, and I'll read this. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Oh, Lord, please answer me today. I am in trouble. I'm in financial trouble. I'm in physical trouble. I, my relationship is in trouble. Oh, answer me today, oh, Lord, because I am in trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. Thank you, God of Jacob, that through your son, Jesus, you have set me securely on high. I will never fall by your grace, by the work of your preserving me through the spirit of God. I am securely set on high. The Bible says in Ephesians that I am seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Thank you for the security of that. See, you already sense perhaps... Your faith strengthening as you pray that God will answer you because he has set you securely on high in Christ. May he send you help from the sanctuary. Oh, God, right from the sanctuary of heaven itself. Send me help today. Send me help with my finances. Send me help with my children. Send me help in my work. Send me help right from the sanctuary of heaven, O oh Lord, and support you from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable. Oh, Father, my offerings to you are the life and death of Jesus Christ, your perfect son. He is the perfect substitute. He is my sacrifice. He is my offering. Please accept my prayer on his behalf, Lord. And you go on and on until you run out of time. You may only have ten minutes, remember. You run out of time. Or you run out of psalm. I believe the psalms are the best place in scripture to pray scripture. For in the psalms, God reveals to us how he wants us to praise him. Remember, that's the original purpose of the psalms. What, what were the psalms originally used for? Songs, right? Songs to God. Right? Now, get ready. This is, the, this is the technological highlight of this whole thing, so get ready. Where did the Psalms come from? Came from God, right? And what did he intend for us to do with the Psalms? To sing them. To sing them to God. Just breathless. I can tell you're overwhelmed by that. Let me run that message. <laughs> we got the Psalms from God. Why did God give us the Psalms? To give them back to God. You ever thought about it like that? By giving us psalms to be sung to God, it's as though God said, now, I want you to praise me. And if you have my spirit, you'll want to praise me. But you don't know how to praise me. You don't know anything about me except what I reveal to you. I mean, am I capricious like Allah? How do you know? How do you not know? What do you know? Everything you know about me, I have to reveal to you because I'm invisible to you. So I want you to praise me, but you don't know how to praise me. So, here are the words I want you to sing. Have you thought about the Psalms like that? God wanted to be praised. We want to praise Him. But He has to tell us how to praise Him. And that's what He does by giving us the Psalms. <clears throat> now, incidentally, do you see anything in the Bible that says we should stop singing Psalms? No, in fact, we have not only one, we have two commands in the New Testament to sing Three things. What are those three things? Psalms, hymns, 
spiritual songs. Never been in a group that didn't know that little triad. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. I've known that all my life. I was teaching a class on worship at a seminary one time. And suddenly it dawned upon me as I was talking about that verse that I had never in my life intentionally sung a psalm, nor had I ever led anyone to do so. And I thought, how could I know that verse like the palm of my hand all my life and have never done it? It was almost as, as startling as to know I'd known Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 all my life as a good Baptist boy. And to wake up one day to realize I was teaching my salvation by works. You know, how could you know by grace you're saved through faith, not works and so forth, and at the same time teaching salvation by works? That's not what I was doing. That was not the realization, but it hit me that hard. I thought, I have known all my life where to sing psalms, and I've never done it. I've been in groups like you. They've come up, oh, yeah, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Yeah, I know that, and I've never done it. I thought, how can I do that? Nor in worship and planning worship had I ever led anyone to do so. But the Bible commands us, Ephesians 5, 19, which is, get ready, it's right after Ephesians 5, 18. Which says, be filled with the Spirit, comma. Speaking one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, making melody with heart to the Lord. Parallel verse, basically I think synonymous. Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, comma. Speaking one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, making melody with your heart to the Lord. We're commanded twice in the New Testament to sing psalms. Do you sing songs? <clears throat> Now, many churches do without realizing it. Sometimes they will sing, As the deer panteth for the water. But we don't call it Psalm 42, do we call it? Let's sing As the Deer. Or right, you ever sung this one? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Or right, anybody here ever sung this psalm before? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Now, in, in a hymnal, usually at the bottom of the page, in small capital letters, they have the, what's called the hymn tune. If you, if you could rip all the words, all the lyrics off the page, and all that would be left would be the notes and the lines of music, that collection of notes has a name. And the one song I just sang, the collect, that collection of notes is called Old Hundredth. Anybody in here want to take a wild guess? Where they got it's Psalm 100. Because see, that's not the only stanza. It also goes on to say, "All people that on earth do dwell." This is Psalm 100. Whew. Oh, good, we sing psalms. <laughs> I am so relieved. Yeah, but see, we don't call them psalms. We say, "Let's sing as the deer," instead of Psalm 42. And you know why we sing them? We don't sing them because they're psalms. We sing them because we like them. We don't care where they're from. They could be out of Mein Kampf. You know, for all some people care. They just like the song. Or it fits the theme of the service. Well, the Bible says, sing psalms. So we should sing psalms just because the Bible says to do it. I mean, the Bible says to do it. We want to do it, right? What church is this? Is this Omaha Bible Church? Let me say that again. If the Bible says to do it, we want to do it, right? Oh, good. I thought I'd gone to the wrong church. <clears throat> I mean, I know learning your music, I mean, that's just, that's almost like martyrdom. You know, here's Nero's Lions. Next thing to that is learn him to learn new, new songs, you know. But if, the, if that's what it takes, if that's what it takes, you look for yourself if that's what the Bible teaches. But if that's what the Bible teaches, we want to do it, don't we? 
even if it learns new music. Now, I'm not arguing musical style. I'm not pushing that. I mean, you may be the most traditional music style, musical style in your church or the most contemporary or something in between. It, wherever you are, there are psalters, whole books of psalms, songs, psalms set to music in that style. So I'm not arguing style at all. Content. To intentionally sing psalms because the Bible in multiple places commands us to sing psalms. And doesn't it make sense that there are no words in all the world that would nourish our, song, our souls in singing than the only words in all the world God has inspired for us to sing? Did you know, in fact, that before 1700... Every denomination sang psalms, sang mostly psalms, and the majority of denominations sang nothing but psalms. I know maybe Baptist background or you're in Baptist churches now. Every Baptist church in the world, all stripes, sang nothing but psalms. It's a, it's a view that's still held by some entire denominations. I don't agree with that view, but it's called exclusive psalmody. Are the view that we are to sing psalms exclusively in the worship of God. We should exclude everything in worship except psalms. Because they believe the Bible teaches that. Um, psalm, all of Psalm 20, 21, 22, you see it says, A psalm of David. Let's say we should, we should sing those, but then if you go over to... Um, like Psalm 45 or Psalm 46, it says, A song. And that's in the original Hebrew. That's verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible. It says, A psalm of David or a song. So they would look at that and they'd say, You know, the Bible says to sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So we shouldn't just sing the psalms like Psalm 20. We should also sing the psalms that are called songs like Psalm 46. In other words, they saw psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and understood it to mean we should sing all of the psalms. Now, I don't agree with that view. But until about 1700, virtually everyone did. And there was a Baptist named Benjamin Keach in London who would be succeeded by a guy named John Gill, who would be succeeded by John Rippon, who would be succeeded by a man named C.H. Spur. See, what was his name? Oh, who, no one knows him anyway. Quite a tradition in that church. And an Anglican at the same time named Isaac Watts, who began to argue that the Bible permits human compositions to be sung in the worship of God. Because until that point, they said Amazing Grace wouldn't be written for a hundred years. But a song like Amazing Grace, it was sin to sing that in worship. Now, sing it at home, sing it in a Fellowship type meeting, but if you call it worship, you may only sing what the Bible says to sing, and the Bible says sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and we think that means all the psalms. Keach and Watts said, no, that permits human compositions as well. And the pendulum swung very quickly. And many of us who grew up in church grew up singing nothing but human compositions, basically. And even when we sang songs based on the Psalms, like A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Psalm 46, and others, we weren't told that. We said, let's sing as the deer. Well, let's sing as the deer, but let's call it 
Psalm 46. Let's tell people the Bible says to sing psalms. Let's obey God now and sing Psalm 42 as the deer pants for the water. There's something satisfying in that, isn't it? You realize we're singing, we're obeying God in singing this song. All of which is to say that the psalms were inspired by God for the very purpose of being reflected to God. And because that's the only book of the Bible inspired for that purpose. I think it's the best book in the Bible from which to pray Scripture. The best book to reflect to God because that's the purpose of that book. But having said that, I think the Psalms are the best place in Scripture from which to pray Scripture. Martin Luther said, every uh, doctrine, uh, let's see, Luther said the Psalms are like a little Bible. Every doctrine in the Bible is there, either in the bud or in the flower, but they're all there. And someone else said that there's a Psalm for every sigh of the soul. There, the entire range of human emotions is there. You'll never go through anything in life that's not reflected in the Psalms. There's some exhilaration, frustration, discouragement, guilt, forgiveness, joy, gratitude, dealing with enemies, contentment, discontentment. Nothing you'll ever go through. Everything you'll ever go through is reflected somehow, the emotion in the psalm. So if you'll quickly scan five of them, it's uncanny how one of them will put into expression what's been looking for expression in your heart. That's the purpose of the psalms, to reflect them to God. So I don't believe there's any place in Scripture, better place to pray Scripture than the psalms. But let me illustrate two more places quickly and break for lunch. I think the second best place in Scripture from which to pray Scripture is the New Testament letters. Let's illustrate that quickly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And the reason I chose 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is that unlike the 23rd Psalm, I'm fairly confident most people don't know what's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want to use an illustration that's more like a real day. Because on a real day, if you're going to read through one, pray through one of the New Testament letters... Sometimes you'll know what's in that chapter, but many days you won't. If I'd said, hey, let's look at the New Testament letters for an illustration. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. Well, many of you know what's there. If I said, let's, as an illustration, let's look at Romans 8. Many of you know what's there. There are a lot of places in the New Testament. We couldn't say, let's see, well, I don't know what's in that chapter. This is probably one of them. But it raises the question, why in the world would you ever want to pray through 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? Probably it's going to happen like this. You started, you, you read through 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and as you did, you said, you know what? I want to stay here. This is rich. I want to go back and read through what I just prayed through. This is really speaking to me today. I don't want to go anywhere else. That's probably why. It just unusually spoke to you. You said, I want to go back and read, pray through what I just read through. <clears throat> if I were to pray through 1 Thessalonians 2 today, it would look something like this. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. I would say, Lord, I pray that my coming to Omaha Bible Church would not be in vain. I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste their time. I pray that there would be much lasting fruit from this time together, and that no one would walk out of here today saying, well, that was in vain. That was a waste of time. 
rather everyone would feel edified and there would be much lasting fruit. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, stop. What two words stand out? Suffered and mistreated. Well, maybe that's you. Maybe you're suffering or you're being mistreated. Or you know someone who is, someone in your church who's suffering, who's about to undergo surgery or someone who's in chemotherapy or something like that. Or maybe that causes you to think of our persecuted brethren in the Sudan or in India or in China. And you pray for the persecuted Christians in those places who are suffering and being mistreated. We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Oh, God, give me the boldness to speak the gospel to that guy at work, that guy down the street, despite the opposition in his heart. I pray for the Christians in India, in the Sudan, in China. Give them the boldness to speak the gospel despite the opposition of the government there. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Maybe you know someone who's coming under error. They're being drawn in by Benny Hinn on television. They're studying with someone going door to door they shouldn't be studying with. They're falling under some sort of error, some teacher who came to town. Or perhaps you would pray for someone being tempted with impurity. Or perhaps it's coming under deceit. You might pray all these things for your teachers in your church. That no error would infect their study and thereby infect the church. God would protect them from the impurity and the damage that could do to the church in the name of Christ and, and deception. Well, if you were to pray like that, how long would it take you to pray through those 20 verses? You wouldn't run out of anything to say, would you? You'd have plenty to pray about, wouldn't you? And that's why the New Testament letters, I think, are the second best place from which to pray Scripture, it's because you've just got so much crammed into almost every verse. We've seen that even between the commas here, things came to mind to pray about. So that virtually every verse in one of the New Testament letters suggests something to pray about. And in fact, as we've noted at the beginning, in many of these letters, there were already prayers embedded within them. And we said that's where many people have encountered this. They started, they were told, hey, see this prayer in Paul's letter here? We should pray these today. Well, we should, but I think we should pray the whole letter. And now finally, let's look at a narrative passage of Scripture. Go to John chapter 8. What do we have in a narrative passage of Scripture? Stories, yeah. Well, we have to learn how to pray through a narrative passage of Scripture, don't we? If we're going to pray through the Bible, because most of our Bible is narrative. All the Gospels, the book of Acts... All those Old Testament stories. But there's one big difference. Thus far, we have looked at the text microscopically. The Lord is my shepherd. Five words. Somebody prayed 25 minutes. We've said that even between the commas in a New Testament letter, there's something to pray about. But with a narrative passage... Instead of looking microscopically, you back up and get the big picture. Because if you try to pray microscopically over a narrative passage of Scripture, it can look like this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Well, if you had to pray something there, it might be about mountains or olives. or I don't know what, but it wouldn't be easy, would it? 
No, you're going to back up, probably read all 11 verses in this section. And you're going to pray about the big ideas, the big, broad brush strokes. Because see, in a narrative passage of Scripture, you usually have these stage-setting verses, after which comes the punchline. It may only be the punchline that you'll pray about in a narrative passage. And so it's a little different. But once you've learned how to do this, you can open up to any part of the Bible and pray through that passage. Now, when we come back after lunch, the first 10 or 15 minutes is going to be the most important part all day. If it is at all possible for you to stay until then, I plead with you to do so. You may have said, well, I've got to leave at lunch. Well, you may have to, and I understand that. There are many reasons for that. But if it's at all possible to stay for the first 15 minutes after lunch, please do that. I really think that's the most important part. And this is not a ministerial deception you know, I'm not after that. I'm not going to say, well, it's the next hour, you know, but wait, there's more. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I really mean that's probably the most important part of the whole thing. So if it is at all possible, please stay for that. Then get up and leave. I won't be offended. I understand people have babysitters. People have work. People have other things they have to do. And so I understand, uh, except if it's a ball game. Uh, but if you can, please, please do that. I'm going to pray. And then pray, ask God's blessing on the food, perhaps, and anything else needs to be said. Uh, I guess maybe some brief description of what we're supposed to do, but I will, I will pray for us now. Father, I do ask there would be much lasting fruit from this day together. I do ask that as a result of this hour and the next hour, that the prayer lives of every person here would be permanently transformed. Lord, we're grateful for this food. When so many people have nothing to eat, here we have all that we want to eat, and we ask that you would bless it. We know it ultimately comes from your hand. We ask your blessing not only on our food, but our fellowship around the table. We pray in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.